Hebrews 6, 1 through 12, hear the word of God. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, laying out of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain and often, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness of the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and, patient and patience inherit the promises. Now, I must say, I come this Sunday with a fair measure of trepidation because I want to focus our attention on verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, I say with a great deal of trepidation because... Because of these words, it's impossible to restore again to repentance. It seems to be counter-gospel. I mean, everything that we're taught is that we can be saved through faith in Christ and we come to Him through repentance and faith. And the invitation is given, the command is given to turn away from your sins and, and to come to Him. But now the author of Hebrews is saying there's a situation in which there's a case in which there's people for whom this repentance is impossible. And so I must say, I face this particular passage with a certain measure of fear, wondering if I can use it in any particular way, understand it in any particular way to help you. I also come with a fair measure of trepidation because if you're new to our church or just visiting, you may be thinking, why in the world is he going to preach about that? Um, so for those of you who don't come often or haven't come before, just know that I began Hebrews way back in April. And I'll stay here till we're done, and that's just the way we do things. And so I find myself quite honestly, almost said quite innocently, but I don't find anything quite innocent about myself, but at least quite honestly, that here I am. And so I, I could skip it, but I think it would be rather obvious for those of you who have been waiting for me to do this. So here we are in this, in this passage. The other thing that concerns me, though, is my fear that our theological boxes will cause us to miss the point. Because the question that's most often asked about this passage is whether or not a person who is a Christian, a real believer in Christ, can lose his or her salvation. I want to suggest to you that that is the wrong question. In fact, if we ask that question, at least initially, it's not an illegitimate question, but it's a wrong question to begin with. If we ask that question initially, there might be some of us that can simply leap over this passage thinking ourselves to be Christian, and thus 
thinking ourselves that we can't lose our salvation. Therefore, it's not about us. Therefore, we can just go on from this passage. But I believe this passage is for all of us to hear. And that I'd like us not to let our theological boxes keep us from listening, keep us from hearing. Now, a better question for which to begin is whether or not I can have any assurance that I belong to Christ. We'll pick up the other question later. But can I have any assurance that I belong to Christ? Or have I reached this point? Have I come to this point where there's no repentance for me? Have I reached that particular point? That's a very important question as well because, you see, the nature of our assurance is such that when we go through difficulties, if we have no assurance of our salvation, we wonder, is this the judgment of God on us? Or is this just His fatherly discipline? It's very important. When we pray, am I really accepted by God? Will He really hear my prayers? And most especially when we face death. What will judgment be like? Will it be a situation where my sins will be judged forgiven? My unrighteousness covered by the righteousness of Christ? Or not? So that's a very important question for us. Can I have assurance? Have I reached this point? Can I really have assurance? Because you see, the author of Hebrews comes to this by way, you remember, of talking about Going on to maturity, notice in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So his his point, you see, is that we're going to move on to maturity. But then in verse 3, he says, "And, And this we will do if God permits. That's a very sobering sentence. Because we notice at least two things. One is that all of our going on to maturity is still under the sovereign work of God. And secondly, he completes this thought, and this we will do if God permits, by saying for some it's impossible, meaning that for some God doesn't permit. For those who are characterized by these particular statements. And the truth of the matter is that when we read through, uh, beginning in the middle of verse 4, this speaks of those who have once been enlightened, those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, that most certainly could be said of Christians. I mean, Christians have been enlightened. I mean, we know the truth. Christians are those who've tasted the heavenly gift. We've, we've, we've experienced something in the context of life with God. Uh, we've, we've shared in the Holy Spirit. I mean, a Christian's been born again by the Holy Spirit. That's sharing, folks. Been shared in the Holy Spirit. Uh, we've shared in the goodness of the Word of, uh, the, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and we've we've listened to it, and it's rung true, and, and we've practiced it, and we said, yes, this Word is good to follow this Word, uh, and we've experienced the powers of the age to come, in, in a variety of ways through the the gifts of the Holy Spirit that He's given to us. But I think we'll be able to see in a minute, too, that this could, these expressions could be used of those who are hanging around the Christian community, of those who are part of the Christian community in various ways, and they've experienced the goodness of God. They've perhaps practiced the scriptures and said, I've learned in the Bible it's good to be faithful to my wife, and they're faithful to their wives, and, and their life goes better. I, I've learned from the scripture that, it, that it's good to, to have integrity and to be honest, and, and they're... They practice integrity and honesty in the context of their work and their lives, and they find things go better. I find from the Bible it's good to be nice to people. It's good to be, good to be kind, good to be forgiving, good to be patient. And so they practice these things, and they find, lo and behold, people like that. 
And that's very beneficial to me. They've tasted some extent to the, the goodness of the Word of God. They've been enlightened to the degree that if you ask them uh, about the gospel, if you gave them a multiple choice test on the gospel, they'd pass. They know what it is. They've heard it. Yes, I know what that is. Indeed, they've seen the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people around them. And maybe in various measures have received it, but yet come to a place where the scripture says they fall away. Now, this falling away is different than simply falling into sin. This falling away is described like this in verse 6. If they then fall away since they're crucifying, uh, once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This falling away means that a person who's had these various experiences and know the gospel, knows the gospel and all of that comes to a point in their life and they say, Jesus isn't the Christ. Because you see, the people who first crucified Jesus, he says they're crucifying again, those who first crucified Jesus looked at him and said, he's not the Son of God. He claims to be the Son of God, but that's blasphemy. He claims to be the Savior of sinner, but that's blasphemy. He claims to be the Messiah, but that's blasphemy. So therefore, he deserves to die. And so to crucify him again is to reject him, to say, no, no, no. He's not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Savior. He's not the Lord. He's not the one who makes atonement for sin. He's not the one in whom we can trust and have eternal salvation. And so when you fall away, in this sense, it means that you've come to a place of bitterness against Christ and you simply reject Him. He's not the Savior. That's different than falling into sin. Those who fall into sin, which we all do, uh, do, in fact, if they're believers in Christ, Repent. Probably the poster child for falling into sin is King David. I think you can make a good case that in his relationship with Bathsheba, he broke every commandment. But most especially, he committed adultery. He stole. He lied. He murdered. He fell into sin. But when he was confronted by the prophet eventually, he came to his senses and he repented of his sin. You can read about that in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. So falling away is different than falling into sin. This falling away is a rejection of Christ. If when the prophet came to King David and confronted him about his sin, if David would have said, would have said hey, get out of here. I'm just fine. I don't need the wisdom of God. I don't need the forgiveness of God. I don't need anything about God. I'm doing just fine myself. I'm going to reject Yahweh. I'm going to live life the way I desire to live it. Now that would have smelled of falling away. But he had fallen into sin and thus he repented when confronted. We all fall into sin. And if we're believers in Christ, then you see what should happen in the context of our lives. What will eventually happen in the context of our lives if we're believers is that we will repent of our sin, confess it, receive the forgiveness of God, turn from it. But this is saying this comes to a point, there's a person who comes to a point wherein there's no repentance. And it isn't as if someone's coming to God and repenting in tears and saying, oh, please forgive me. And God says, no, you had your chance. There's no repentance because the person doesn't want to repent. The person just simply rejects Christ. Why would they repent? They said, there's no hope in Christ. There's no help in Christ. He's not the Savior. Why should I turn from my sin and follow him? That's what this means by falling away. Now, it shouldn't surprise us in one sense that the author of Hebrews is here. As we've been building up and reading uh, through, there have been very, very serious warnings about this kind of thing. Review them with me. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 1, he says to them, 
Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. He's saying, listen, I want to tell you, church, that, that, that you need to listen, pay very close attention to what we're saying about the gospel so that you don't drift away from it because there's danger in drifting away from it. Notice how he goes on, verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, meaning that the message from the angels, that is the Old Testament covenant law, mediated by the angels, that, that, that particular law, that every transgression of it was punished, verse 3 then, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's a warning. And again, he isn't warning uh, the blissful pagan. He's warning people who are listening to this letter, that is, people who live and breathe in the context of the community the context of the church. When he's talking about those who've experienced all of this, they've experienced it in the community of faith. And he's saying, when you fall away from that, there's no hope of repentance. It's as if you've had every opportunity, every chance. You've, you, you look like you bought in, but, but, but then you... He says, that's the danger, you see. And so he said, it's very dangerous to be in the context of the community and not pay attention. And not respond. It's very dangerous to neglect for verse 3. How shall we escape? Escape what? Escape the wrath of God. Chapter 3, verse 12. He puts it like this. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Again, this isn't something that he's taken out in the in the streets and on the street corner, he's shouting this out to people who have no clue about the gospel. He's sharing this in the context of the community. He's saying to them, listen, you've had all these experiences. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You've tasted the goodness of the word of God. You've experienced the powers of the age to come. You've tasted in the Holy Spirit and all of that. You've been enlightened. You know the truth. Now, make sure, take care that that doesn't result in an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, sin is there, and it's trying to deceive you, trying to suck you away from that which is true. And so be careful. Uh, exhort everybody, encourage everybody, every single day, so that this doesn't happen in the context of your life. That is, so that you don't end up to the conclusion of what we read in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. He says, be careful. Be careful. Verse 11, chapter 4, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's saying, don't miss it. Don't disobey to the point where you miss it. Chapter 5, and verse 11, About this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. This is very dangerous to become dull of hearing. It's very dangerous to be in the midst of the community of believers and not listen, not pay attention, because that ultimately leads you to not going on to maturity. And when you're not going on to maturity, you have to be very careful that you're not one that's going to become so embittered that you're going to bail, that you're going to fall away. Because then, if you do, there's no repentance, no opportunity to re for repentance. And we say, well, this is a true believer or not a true believer. Don't go there yet. 
I want this to shake us all. I want us all to think about this. Because you see, as we begin throughout the read throughout the scripture, we find this kind of warning throughout. It's there everywhere. For instance, turn to Hebrews in chapter 12 to catch an Old Testament situation. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. I won't spend a lot of time on this because we'll spend more time on it you know, next year when we get to Hebrews chapter 12. See to it, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He's saying, listen, the grace of God is, is just all over you people. So, so make sure you grab a hold of it. Make sure it becomes true in the context of your own life. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. That is, that you don't get so embittered by life and all of that that you don't embrace God's grace. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Ah, a real, live, breathing illustration. Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You remember Esau. Isaac, two twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau was born first in the, of the twins, but Jacob was the one who received the promise. And you remember there was a time when Esau was out and he was very hungry. Jacob was cooking. He made some stew. Uh, Esau was very hungry. comes to him and says, Can I have some stew? His brother said, I'll sell you some. What's the price? It's your birthright. Meaning, the blessing and the inheritance you get by being the firstborn. And so Esau disregards, despises, if you will, his birthright. Sees it of less value to him than a bowl of soup. And so he exchanges it. And now Jacob is the possessor of this birthright. Then you might remember as Isaac approaches death, Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mom who favored Jacob, works out a deal wherein Jacob is able to trick his father, who knows nothing about the sale of the birthright, trick his father into giving Jacob the blessing that belongs by way of birth order to Esau. Isaac gives the blessing to Jacob After he leaves, Esau comes in. And as Esau comes in, he seeks the blessing of the firstborn. But his father says, I've already given it. It doesn't exist anymore. It's already on him. I can't give it to you. I can't give it twice. And the scripture says that Esau cried out with tears. But notice how the author of Hebrews understands that. Verse 17, he says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance or no opportunity, really, to repent though he sought it with tears. A situation where someone couldn't repent. And when it says sought it with tears, it doesn't mean that he really wanted to follow after God, that his sadness was because he had lost out on some blessing from God, but he lost out on the blessing that that inheritance would be and how good that would put him in the context of the world. Think of the author of Hebrews' favorite illustration. We see it creeping through this entire message, and that is uh, the ancient Hebrews as they went through the wilderness. Think about what they had experienced. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God brings Moses to deliver them. Moses comes, and all those plagues, they see it, God working on their behalf, God destroying all the gods, 
of the ancient Egyptians right before their very eyes. And then finally, Pharaoh relents, you remember, after that first Passover, when God gives his people away to avoid the angel of death, simply by a lamb being killed in blood over the doorposts. Their child, their firstborn, saved the firstborn of the Egyptians, dead. So they leave, and as they leave Egypt, all of them are healed. That's an amazing statistic, isn't it? I mean, here they were slaves. Who knows what their health conditions would have been in that kind of a situation. But as they leave Egypt, all of them are healed, and they plunder the Egyptians. So they leave healthy and wealthy. And as they leave under all of that, having experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, they go out and, and they come to the Red Sea and the Red Sea opens before them. The sea bottom, river bottom, dries out so that they can walk across it. And then, of course, you know the story. The Pharaoh's armies come and they're drowned in the sea. So they're delivered miraculously. They get hungry. Food shows up on the ground. It's rather tasty. And there it is. They taste that heavenly gift that comes from God. And then they're thirsty, and so he gives them water for millions of people out of a rock. They get to Mount Sinai, and they actually hear the voice of God. And yet still they didn't believe. God says they won't enter my rest because of disobedience slash unbelief. That's very sobering to think of that. I mean, there's a sense in which you get the impression they must have hit this point. Of they've experienced all of this. They knew, if they were enlightened, they heard the voice of God. They received His law. They saw Him act. They saw the Holy Spirit work. They tasted the heavenly gift. All that kind of stuff. And yet still they didn't believe. And thus they couldn't enter the very rest of God. How sobering is that? We read this morning in our responsive reading, what we call the parable of the sower. Look in Mark, in chapter 4. You know this particular parable of Jesus. And Jesus talks about a person going out sowing seed, and he sows seed. And as he does, it falls on various places. It falls on this, this, this hard path, and the birds of the air come, and, and they eat it up so it doesn't grow. It falls on uh, some rocky soil, you remember, and it, because the soil is so rocky, it can't get a good root. And so even though sort of it comes up quickly, the sun comes out, bakes it, and when it does, it withers and dies. Uh, and then some of the seed goes on thorny ground and, and, uh, and a lot of weeds and so forth. And so it goes into that thorny ground, and the weeds and thorns come up and choke it out so it doesn't really grow, even though it seems like it starts to grow. And then some of that seed goes on good soil, and it produces a wonderful crop. Here's Jesus' explanation, verse 14 of Mark chapter 4. The sower sows the path. I'm sorry, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Oh my. Here's a situation where it comes up seemingly with joy. They get it, they're enlightened, all that kind of stuff. And, and so they, they, they receive this word and with joy they pop up. But then persecution comes against them and they, you get a sense, become embittered against Christ. 
you get a sense they're thinking, why should I have to suffer when I follow Christ? What's the deal? I I became a Christian. I'm supposed to have eternal life. God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. The Holy Spirit lives within me. Why am I not uh, protected? Why am I not healthy, happy, and all of that sort of thing? Why this persecution on account of the Word of God? And they're embittered, and so they leave. That sounds very Hebrews 6-ish. Then, verse 18, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter and choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. You get a, another sense that this word uh, is sown and it, it goes up and people in the com- you know, community say, ah, oh, that person's a Christian and that person's a Christian and so forth and so on. And then they look out to the world and they say, wait a minute, here I am. I've got to die to my sin of materialism and sexual impurity and selfishness and self-centeredness. And I'm looking at the world and all those things seem so satisfying. Why should I have to die to those? Why, why can't I go along with that? Why can't I join them? And you get this sense again that even though they've had a certain measure of enlightenment now, they leave. Follow that. And then there's some on good soil. Again, sounds very much like Hebrews 6. Uh, how many of these do you want? John 15. I wouldn't do this if I didn't love you. It's no more fun for me than it is for you. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, this is Jesus speaking, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruits. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, He's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Now when Jesus was speaking this particular word, he was speaking to a group of people who thought themselves to be the vine. See, the ancient Israelites were told over and over again by God in the scripture that they were the vine and he was the vine dresser. Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, I'm the vine. Meaning, I'm the true Israel. I'm the true Son of God. You were to be the true Israel, but you're not. I am. And so if you desire to be the true Israel, people of God, you need to be attached to me. You need to abide in me. And if not, then though you're part of this historic community of God, though you've received the oracles of God, so you have in your history the miracles of God and, and all the feasts and all the festivals and all of that, that if you don't abide in me, You'll be cut off. There's no way back apart from me. Mark chapter 3, verse 28. Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. Whatever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. You remember the context here. Jesus was casting out demons in the Religious leader said, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. What a horrible thing to say. To ascribe the work of Christ to Satan. 
And you see, the, 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 this casting out was by Christ, by way of the Holy Spirit. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to promote Jesus, to show us Jesus, to show us who He is. And He says, if you go against this truth that the Holy Spirit brings about me, about Jesus, no forgiveness. Because you have to believe in me. Judas, interesting. When Jesus said that there was one among the disciples who would betray Him, Judas was so much a part of the community of disciples that no one suspected him. Nobody said, oh, it's Judas, of course. They says, is it I? Demas was one who traveled with the Apostle Paul on occasion, 2 Timothy in chapter 4. He writes of Demas who had deserted him because he loved the world. You get a sense that here was Demas doing ministry. And then... He got attracted by the world, and that seemed more exciting, more satisfying than what was going on in the ministry of Paul. And so he left because he loved the world. Last one, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. These, of course, are all the passages that pastors never read. Right? It's the last time you heard that one. He says, there is a sin that leads to death. This blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this Hebrews chapter 6. Don't pray, it won't help you. Sober, isn't it? And again, he's not talking about those who are outside the community, but those who are inside the community, those who are professors of Christ, those who appear to be Christians. Whether they are or aren't, we'll pick up next week. But, but that's the word here. And the author of Hebrews is concerned, and he pours out his heart, and he says, be careful. He says, because you see, the problem is in the drifting. The problem is in the not listening. The problem is not applying. The problem is when you don't take this seriously. The problem is when you hang out and enjoy the benefits of the church and enjoy the benefits of the community of faith. And you don't really love and follow Christ. And so you say, well, if that's the case, can I have any assurance of my, my own salvation? You just talked me out of it, Bill. Um, yeah, what, what, can, what can I do here? And the answer is we have assurance as believers so long as we continue to believe and follow Christ. If you stop believing, where's your assurance? If you reject Christ, where is your assurance? If you find yourself disinterested in the things of God, where is your assurance? It can't just simply be in an experience you had 20 years ago. It can't be in an experience of professing your faith. We're not saved on the basis of professing our faith. We're saved by Christ through faith. So don't look at that and say, well, I did it once. I'm fine. Now the question is, are you believing him? And are you following him? Are you listening to him? When confronted, do you repent of your sin or not? Very serious 
questions. He says it's very dangerous to be hanging around the community and be dull of hearing. It's very dangerous to be hanging around the community and have your heart actually being hardened. Because, you see, you can come to a place there of becoming embittered against Christ. It just isn't working for me. There's just really nothing going on here. I'm just not into this and leaving. And then the danger is you can't get back. And it isn't that God won't accept you back. It's just simply you won't want to come back. You've had enough. And so he says, listen, pay attention, apply, follow. My watch must be fast. Let me just share with you quickly how I approach and apply this passage in the context of my own life. I do this not because my application to my life is any more significant than your application to your life. It's just that I, I, I don't know what yours is. I only know what mine is, so I'm going to share it. In the context of my own theological orientation, my own faith, my own life, and my own assurance. So let me give you some very brief background. Theological orientation. I believe that God saves sinners. I believe that salvation is a work of God. I believe that before the foundations of the world, God chose those who would be in Christ whom he would save. He's the sovereign one. It's his deal. So he looked out in the mystery of his sovereign wisdom. He chose those who would be saved. In the midst of that, his son, the Lord Jesus, agreed, volunteered to come and save them. His father says, I want to save these for my glory. His son says, I want to glorify you. Thus, I'll come and save them. And so when the Lord Jesus came, he died. And while his blood is sufficient to save countless billions... He had in his mind the very ones the Father desired to save. And thus he could pray, I've saved them, the very ones you gave me. And I believe that the death of Christ is a propitiation for our sins. And the word propitiation means that the blood of Christ satisfies the wrath of God and covers all sins. And I believe it covers all the sins even unbelief, of those for whom he died, for whom the Father had chosen. And thus there's perfect agreement between the Father and the Son. And thus everything that was necessary for the salvation of those God chose happened by way of the Son. His perfect righteousness, his sufficient blood, his efficient blood for them. Thus, upon his ascension, by decree of Father and Son, the Holy Spirit was sent in agreement with the Father and Son's plan to apply to all those the Father had chosen and the Son had died for this wonderful grace of salvation. And so what did he do? He came and gave new life to all those for whom the Son had died that they might trust in him, believe in him. Thus I believe that salvation is of God. So there's no one more, theoret more theologically secure in salvation than me because I've seen the evidence in the context of my own life of that working of the Holy Spirit. Evidence being first and foremost is I believe. Why me and not somebody else? There are people in the world who are smarter than me, who are nicer than me, uh, who don't believe. Why do I believe and they don't? What's in me that's different than in them? Nothing other than this mysterious work of the Holy Spirit 
for which I cannot account other than the grace of God. So since I believe that it's God's work, and since I believe that God finishes what he starts, then I believe that I'm secure, I have assurance, I'm, I'm saved. And again, I see this in the context of my own life. I, I believe, and even as slow as my maturity process is, and it's painfully slow, I'm afraid, I see evidence of the work of grace in me. So I have a great measure of assurance that I belong to Christ, that I belong to God through him. So then you say, well, if that's the case, then why do you worry about such a passage like this one that says that people fall away and reject Christ? Do you believe you're going to reject Christ? And I say, by the grace of God, no, I don't. And so then again you say, well, then why worry about this? Why the pain and agony that you're putting all of us through, if you can tell it most especially yourself in the midst of this? It's because of this, number one, as a pastor. A passage like this sobers me up tremendously. Because I I know that this was written by a pastor, whoever this author of Hebrews is, to a community of people professing faith in Christ. This wasn't for a street corner preacher. This wasn't for somebody to stand out and yell it to the masses. This was to take it to the church. And thus, I have to believe that if there are people in those days who would fall away, become embittered against Christ, that could well be true here. And thus I realized the great significance of every time we meet. I realized the great significance of how we pray. I realized the great significance about how we prepare, how I prepare to teach and how others prepare to teach and to share this truth and this word of God and and how it is that we live and how it is that we exhort each other. It's very significant, you see, that we're able to encourage and exhort each other as long as it's called today, every day, so that none of us can have an evil and unbelieving heart, a hardening of heart, deceived by sin. It's important for us, you see. And I believe the great significance of not letting you drift, not letting you be dull of hearing, in any way, shape, or form, you can possibly depend on anything that I do in the context of your lives. So I preach like this. And thus I have to say that if you're hanging around the church and you keep hearing this truth and you keep enjoying the fellowship, but you find yourself not buying in, that Christ is not your all in all, that your forgiveness is not on the basis of his blood alone, And you're in great danger. You're putting yourself in a position where there's no return. And also, you see, as I come across a passage of Scripture like this, it actually motivates me to to follow Christ even more. And you might say, well, how? Well, Well, first and foremost, because when I'm tempted to sin, it isn't that I begin to think, oh, it really doesn't matter how I live because I'm saved. It doesn't really matter what I do. I'm I'm saved. I can't fall away. I'm cool. I'm secure. I'm all of that. No, when I'm tempted to sin, I realize then the deceitfulness of sin. Because if sin is even coming after a blood-bought child of God, then sin is really horrible. And so, when temptation comes, it wakes me up. And I begin to think, ah, I mustn't go there. Oh, that I wouldn't go there more often. Finally this, and I hope you can understand what I'm about to say. 
but in the days that I have to live, whether that simply be this afternoon or the next 50 years, I understand this passage to mean that if my zeal for Christ grows cold, that if I no longer find delight in forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ alone, that if I no longer enjoy the sovereignty of God and His workings in my life, that if I think the incarnation to be of no effect, that I think of the atonement of Christ to be unimportant, that if I find the delights of the world more satisfying than the delights of the kingdom of God, that if I leave the wife of my youth so that I might be satisfied by another that if I disregard the needs of my children and allow them simply to fend for themselves, that if I disregard my life of prayer and study of the scripture for it doesn't satisfy me at all, then I realize that I have lived a life of complete deception. That my ministry would just have been a Desire for social status and your affirmation. Though my love for my life would simply be because it got me affirmation and an easy life, not love for Christ. And my love for the Word of God would simply have been an intellectual curiosity and a way to impress others that I know more about spiritual things than they do. And then my prayer life would be most deceptive at all of all. Because in giving the impression I was communing with God, I simply would have only been impressing you. And you may say, wow, it's kind of a downer, Bill. But it isn't because, you see, as I think that way, it gives me great assurance. Because when I realize what's at stake, it makes me cling to Christ all the more. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me and for us that there would in fact be none of us here with an evil and unbelieving heart. God, that none of us would be so accustomed to hearing the gospel of grace that it would just sound like everyday news and that after a while that the things of the world would become sweeter than the things of Christ and that we would turn our backs on Christ and crucify him again. I pray, Father, that the seriousness of this word and the sober sound and tone which the author of Hebrews has rung would cause us to cling all the more to Christ. If there are those this morning for whom Christ is not their life, I pray that you would not allow their hearts to be hardened but draw them to yourself that they may trust in him. And Father, for any of us who are believers who's finding ourselves dull of hearing or drifting or not quite so interested in the things of God that you would catch us up and light that fire again within us that Christ may be our all in all. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I...
remind you that there are elders available to pray in the office area, so please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction is this one. Jesus is the Christ. Hallelujah. Now, really, the operative word there is the word hallelujah. Because the very fact that Jesus is the Christ can be affirmed by anybody who's been enlightened, who understands that, that basic truth. He's the Christ. But the word hallelujah says, ah, I like that, that he's the Christ. He must be the Christ, else I'd be lost. Please receive this as the benediction of God. Now may the God of peace you brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Jesus is the Christ. Hallelujah.